Good morning, Central Nazarene. It's Palm Sunday. It's also the fourth Sunday that you've been worshiping at home, and we've been either at the church or now the last two weeks in my house. So I want to welcome you to Palm Sunday service. Our Heavenly Father, we gather on this Palm Sunday in different homes, in different places, but we are one church. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us during this time. We specifically pray that you would be the hunt with the hundreds of thousands who are recovering from COVID-19 with their families or who are still sick, maybe in the hospitals. And Lord, we especially pray for those who have lost loved ones during this pandemic. We pray for the health providers and the professionals who put their own lives at risk to care for so many. We pray, Lord, that you would be with them and help them as Sometimes the, the, the resources are limited, but we're so thankful that your power is not limited. We pray, Lord, for the authorities that have to make tough decisions on the behalf of their people, whether that's in our country or in so many countries around the world. We pray, Lord, for the manufacturers and those providing the, the necessary resources for these healthcare professionals. We pray, Lord, for the scientists who are looking for ways to treat the victims and stop the, the pandemic. We pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and insight, that, that you would, would help them. We pray, Lord, for the spiritual and mental health of millions of people, both socially and economically, that are affected by this pandemic. We pray, Lord, for church leaders all around the world, that you would help us in ways that we can minister best to our people. And we pray, Lord, for the, for the folks who are, are just longing to be back in church, longing to get life back to normal, longing to have their souls renewed and being revived and encouraged by the gathering of your saints in your church. And Lord, we just pray. We pray that you would be near us and be with all those that are at home today that are, that are just feeling a little tense, maybe stressed out, uh, life is different, and so, Lord, help all of us to navigate these days uh, through you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. You, you never disappoint us. We can always trust in you, so be with us, Lord, throughout the rest of this service, we pray. Amen. My favorite COVID-19 Bible verse still is James 4 eight. Wash your hands, you sinners. Look it up. It's there. Oh, I miss worshiping together. I can't wait until we're all together again. I know you're feeling the same way. On Sunday mornings, we've been looking at the life of Peter during this Lenten season, and Peter always seems to be around the action. But lately, Peter's been getting it wrong. Two weeks ago, Peter got it wrong about the Messiah's purpose. Remember, Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi and asked them, who do you think that I am? And Peter said, strong and sure, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. All right, Peter. But then Jesus went on to describe the Messiah. He wasn't going to lead a rebellion. He wasn't going to chase the Romans out of the Holy Land. Instead, the Messiah was going to suffer, die, be buried, but on the third day rise again. And Peter, being Peter, got it wrong. He rebuked the one he just called the Messiah, the son of the living God. He said, no, 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 that'll never happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan. Peter was thinking like the devil, wanting Jesus to grab a crown without the cross. Well, last week, 
We saw how Peter missed the mission of Jesus. Jesus took Peter along with James and John up the mountain of transfiguration, where he was greeted by the greatest lawgiver, Moses, the greatest prophet, Elijah. And best of all, from the heavens below, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter wanted to stay on that mountain forever, but of course, Jesus knew his mission was in Jerusalem. He came to redeem, rescue, restore those who are lost and troubled. This was immediately demonstrated as they came down the mountain, and in the valley was that poor dad whose son was full of the devil. The other nine disciples didn't know what to do. They were at their wit's end, and of course, Jesus restored the boy to his father, and then they began their trek towards Jerusalem. They first stopped off in Capernaum, about a 20-mile journey, and that's where Matthew 17 and 18 take place. And then Matthew 19, Jesus and his disciples start off through the 100-mile journey to Jerusalem. As they approach the holy city, word spreads that Jesus is coming. Crowds gather, bringing palm branches and waving those branches. It's Palm Sunday. You've heard enough sermons to know that on that day, people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's exactly how the Jews celebrated when the Maccabees had their victory over the Romans. They celebrated waving palm branches, and people were thinking, Jesus is like the Maccabees, only better. The Maccabees had a rebellion, but it only lasted three years before the Romans came in and wiped them out. So people are thinking, Jesus is like the Maccabees, only better. Romans, we've had enough of their heavy-handed tactics, but now Jesus is riding into town. Remember, I told you that's how Peter was thinking. The Messiah is a warrior. The Messiah will chase the Romans out. The Messiah is like the Maccabees, only better. But now Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. People are waving their palm branches. The prevailing belief is there's a new sheriff in town. And this wild frenzy is exactly why Jesus wanted to keep it quiet. That's why he told the disciples not to share with anyone that he was the Messiah. But once he got into town, he went to the temple, turned over the tables of the money changers and drove the merchants out. He said, my father's house will be a house of prayer, which ironically enough upset the religious leaders. You would have thought that the religious leaders would have been glad he was encouraging prayer. Shouldn't that be in the religious leader's handbook? Encourage prayer, keep the temple holy. But they were upset. Why were they upset? <laughs> it's all about the money. The religious leaders were in cahoots with the money changers and the merchants. They would have been ripping off the worshipers, lining their own pockets with the faithful's money. This move all but... but solidified Jesus' fate in their concern as far as the religious leaders were concerned. And each day following, Jesus would go back to the temple, teach the crowds, but the religious leaders were waiting for their chance to pounce on Jesus, put an end to his teaching, an end to his popularity, to do away with this country bumpkin preacher from Nazareth once and for all. On Thursday of that week, Luke tells us that Jesus sent Peter and John into the town to prepare the Passover meal. Here's how Luke tells the story. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. The preparations for the meal would have included finding a meeting place, gathering all the traditional foods together, lamb, bitter herbs, kind of a traditional salad, a few other things, and either prepare the food or have it prepared. There would have been a lot of details for Peter and John to work out. So Jesus says, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And verse 9, then they ask, well, where do, you want us, where do you want us to prepare for it? And Jesus replied, hold on to your hat. If you're questioning Jesus' divinity, maybe this will answer it. 
For Jesus replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room, all furnished. Make preparations there. It kind of sounds like a spy novel. Psst, this is where you need to go. You'll see a guy carrying a jug. He'll walk to a certain house. This is what you're supposed to say. It's almost like, uh, you know, Colonel Mustard's in the library with a candlestick. Verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. I wonder how Peter and John felt about missing a day with Jesus for what they thought was uh, a menial task, getting the meal ready. Were they muttering under their breath? Why couldn't Jesus have asked Bartholomew or Matthew to do this? Doesn't he know I'm the rock? And, and John would have said, yeah, and I'm half of the sons of thunder. Maybe I've known too many Christians who've balked at some menial task, thinking it's beneath them. Oh, I could never do that. Keep listening. We're going we're gonna to tackle that one this morning. Whatever their thoughts, here we go. It's time for the Passover dinner. Dinner time for the Passover. It would be a joyful time. Kind of like an Easter dinner, like we maybe would have gathered if we weren't all quarantined, where family and friends all get together and we're thanking God for his provisions and faithfulness and all of that. When the disciples walk into the upper room to celebrate the Passover, they didn't realize that this would be their last meal with Jesus before his crucifixion, but it is. So they enter the room, no doubt laughing, carrying on. Jesus and his disciples would have removed their sandals, leaving them at the door. A lot of you do the same thing. You take off your shoes when you enter into somebody's house. When our home group gathers, especially in the wintertime, there's a pile of shoes right over there in that corner. It's a huge pile right by the front door. I imagine that's what they were doing. Of course, in the room where they went, they didn't have furniture like ours. There were no chairs like this. No, the, our dining room table, which is right over there, if the camera would have moved, you would see that we've, we've had it for over 20 years. A couple of Amish brothers built it. It has four leaves. We've put 14 people around that table at one time. So, so Jesus and all the disciples, plus either Carla and I, could have sat at the table. And with apologies to Leonardo da Vinci, I'm pretty certain they didn't all sit on one side of the table like they were the bridal party at a wedding reception. You've seen that picture. Or have you seen the picture of the Last Supper if the Last Supper had happened during this COVID-19 crisis? I think that picture is so funny. So anyway, Jesus and his disciples would have taken off their sandals, left them at the door. They would have sat on mats or pillows on the floor. They would have eaten from low tables on the floor. People in, from the house later that evening would have slept on mats on the floor. So taking off one's shoes at the door reflected a cleanliness and good manners. Usually the homeowner, if they were wealthy, would have a servant standing by the door to, to wash and, and clean the feet of the disciples as they came into the house. But there was no servant. Just a towel and basin, a pitcher of water uh, would be by the door. It's kind of a DIY, do-it-yourself foot washing kit. The upper room had no servant, just the water and the basin. But none of the disciples bothered to wash their feet. Why is that? Why didn't they wash their feet for crying out loud? Is, is this just a case of boys being boys, lounging around the room, thinking, ah, who cares if we've got dirty feet? I have two sons, no daughters. And when Ben and Alex were younger, on those occasions when Carla would be gone for a weekend retreat, the Prince boys, well, we'd carry, uh, we wouldn't carry on with the same exact spick and span mannerisms of my lovely bride. 
We'd put a sign on the front door that said, no girls allowed. It would be a wedding club. We'd be sloppy. We'd eat what we want to eat. We wouldn't do the dishes. Let them pile up in the sink. By the end of the weekend of sloppiness, there'd be a pizza box in the living room, chips on the counter, socks on the floor, crumbs and mess everywhere. But approximately two hours before the queen of clean would make her entrance, we would get busy cleaning, vacuuming, mopping, wiping down everything that we could, trying to get the house back to its original pristine living conditions. Our boys only weekend would be over soon and we knew it was time to return to our manners. A lady was coming into the house. I know sometimes boys can be boys and lose their manners. Is that the case of what's happening here with the disciples? With the absence of a servant to wash the feet of all presents, the disciples have these options. Ignore the problem. Act like uh, uh, this behavior, stinky feet doesn't matter, dirty feet doesn't matter, or grab the basin and towel and start washing feet. Option two seems to be what's in their mind. No one moves except Jesus. Now in Luke's account of the Last Supper, he describes a dispute that arose among the disciples concerning who was the greatest. Now, the greatest Jesus is right there among them, and yet they're having this petty argument, uh, uh, kind of Muhammad Ali style, saying, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Who's the greatest? Well, Jesus is the greatest. Are you kidding me? And they're describing this. So at that point, at the perfect time, Jesus decides to make his point. The meal was about to be served. All eyes were on the table. They were waiting for that, that lamb dinner Everyone was hungry. It was a, a, a point of anticipation. You know, I've never been a big lamb fan until last summer. My friend Al and Ginny Whiting had us over to their house and they made lamb chops and it was awesome. So I can understand how the disciples were getting excited. I mean, a lamb dinner cooked right. Oh my goodness, it's a wonderful thing. Their mouths are watering. They can't wait. Anticipation for this wonderful time. But their feet, their feet are still nasty. To the disciples, astonishment, amazement, embarrassment, shock. Shortly after they sat down, Jesus retrieved the water and basin, wrapped the towel around his waist, and assumed the role of a servant, and began to wash each dirty, nasty foot. In John's account, he, in verses 3 and 11, he lets us know that Jesus is in complete control of this situation. So make sure you understand Jesus, teacher, Lord, what Peter had said, Messiah, the son of the living God, by all rights, he should be the last one performing this menial task. It should have been one of the disciples grabbing the towel and basin, but Peter doesn't move. Neither does John, Andrew, Matthew, James, Bartholomew, all the rest. They all act as if this, this isn't a problem. Yet foot after foot, Jesus is making his way around the room. The tension, the discomfort, no doubt was palpable. Their laughter and joking soon came to a quiet, uneasy silence. There was something very wrong with this picture. Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. When Jesus gets to Peter, of course, Peter is never short on words. And he says, no, no, Lord. You shall never wash my feet. Never, never, never. I don't think this was anger. This isn't like the rebuke that, G that Peter gave Jesus up in Caesarea Philippi about uh, Jesus' view of the Messiah. It wasn't like this. 
It was more like when someone uh, does a favor for you and you try to pay them back and, and you say, or they say to you, no, 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 no. I could never take your money. No, 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 no. It was, a, it, it's, it's, it's okay. I think that's what's happening here. Peter is saying, no, 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 Lord. You shouldn't be washing my feet. It, sh- it shouldn't be the other way around. Of course, Peter walked by the basin and water and towel, just like everybody else. So now, maybe with a deep sense of, of embarrassment, shame maybe, he didn't wash his feet. And so Jesus, of all people, Jesus, the Messiah, is washing his feet. No, 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 Jesus. You shouldn't be doing that. Have you ever walked by someone who is in need and you didn't do anything. You just kind of walked by. And someone in your group, maybe it was your spouse or a friend who was with you, they did offer help. You feel a little embarrassed. Kind of like, oh, why didn't, why didn't I help? Maybe it's giving up a seat on an airport tram to an older person or helping someone struggle with their carry-on luggage. Of course, none of us have those problems these days. Or maybe it's helping a homeless person on the street. You didn't help. You could have helped. And someone else in your party did help. And you think, well... Why didn't I think of that? Why, why did I just walk by? Am I just a jerk or, or, or am I calloused? Why didn't I help? It seems that that's what's going on here with the disciples. They're feeling a little uneasy. Maybe not Judas Iscariot. At this point, Judas had already betrayed Jesus, already had the 30 pieces of silver. Probably he'd been frustrated with Jesus already by this point. Judas, like the crowd, thought that Jesus was going to be like the Maccabees, only better but he hadn't rallied any troops. It's Thursday. He didn't start a rebellion. He, Jesus wasn't the type of Messiah he was looking for. And so maybe Jesus washing the feet of his disciples proved Judas' point. A strong, tough leader would never wash the feet of his followers. It was a sign of weakness in Judas' mind. But Peter, Peter spoke up, no, Jesus, no, 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 no. Jesus, you, you can't be washing my feet. To which Jesus He didn't let Peter off the hook or any of them. He said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus was saying, unless you allow me to serve you in this way, you you really don't get what these last three years have been about. You don't get what we've been doing this whole time. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said some Christians think some jobs are beneath them. I'd never do that. It's kind of like what Peter's going through. And Peter's response shows us both his passion, but also his confusion. Because he says, well, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well, everything. He's all in. And suddenly, so Peter, I imagine Jesus was smiling and shaking his head, maybe saying, Peter, you you just aren't getting it. Verse 10, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. In assuming the role of a servant, Jesus is showing Peter and his disciples, and us, just what he expects. He puts away the water, the basin, the towel. All eyes are on him. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am, your teacher and Lord. And I have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I'm not sure the lesson was totally about washing feet. I I don't know that we have to worry about that in our culture. It's not a part of our daily routine. But the lesson is much deeper than that. I have given you an example, Jesus said, to follow. Do as I have done for you. There's not a lot of gray area in that. Not much wiggle room. 
just a straightforward, I have been your example, I have been a servant, you know what to do, be a servant. We're talking about servanthood this morning. So the question becomes, are we? Are we servants? Are we doing what Jesus commanded us to do? Are we serving others? Are we the type of people who would quickly pick up the basin and wash the feet of those around us? Are we acting as a servant toward the least of these in our midst? Are we washing their feet, helping, caring for them? Are we noticing them? Or are we thinking we're better than them? Do you see them? A guy named Robert Greenleaf coined the phrase, oh my goodness, 50 years ago now, servant leadership. Really, he was just copying Jesus. Jesus started it. Servant leadership is really, according to Greenleaf, he, he would say it's the success in almost all endeavors. Marriages, for example, are successful when people act as servants toward each other. They wake up each morning and they recognize that part of their job is to bless their spouse, encourage their partner, build them up, not tear them down, minister to them. I've talked to people already kind of stir crazy in this two-week stay-at-home order. And some of your marriages are getting a little stretched. You're getting on each other's nerves. Our daily routines are mixed up. We haven't found a new normal yet. And maybe this is what you need to hear today. Be a servant at home. Servant leadership in the home. Now that only works if both people share that attitude. It's giving and receiving. That's what the vows you said meant. And that's what you agreed to to love and to cherish in sickness and in health till death do us part. It's saying, I'll be your servant. What does it mean to be a servant in my house during a pandemic with family that are there or a few friends that I might see? What does it mean to follow the example of Jesus? Do as I have done. Paul in Philippians 2, which by the way, we're doing a Bible study Wednesday night, 6.30, live streamed on Wednesdays on the book of Philippians. Pastor Tyler is leading it this week. Join us, Philippians 2. But in Philippians 2, Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In 1985, oh, that's a long time ago, oh my land, I graduated from what was then called Olivet Nazarene College. I'd been a pretty good student, pretty successful academically, popular enough, I guess. Life in school had always been pretty easy for me. I was the youngest in our family. My siblings would say I was spoiled. I wouldn't say that. Okay, maybe a little bit. And following my time at Olivet, I went to Kansas City to get my master's degree at Nazarene Theological Seminary. At the time, I was very much full of myself, pretty self-centered, fairly arrogant. I shouldn't have been. I had a big old afro. You can't be too cool when you have a big old afro. And I was driving a 1978 Ford Fairmont. It's tough to be cool when you're driving a Ford Fairmont with vinyl seats. But I thought I was cool anyway. Well, I needed a job that would fit in with my school schedule. And so I got one at the Nazarene Publishing House, now called The Foundry. I wasn't an editor or a proofreader or even somebody's executive assistant. No, I was a janitor. From three o'clock to nine o'clock every afternoon, I was a janitor. Three to midnight when I wasn't in school, a janitor. I cleaned the desk of the proofreaders and editors and executive assistants. I mopped their floors. I cleaned their toilets. I had that job for two years. 
I thought I was there to earn money so that I could attend school and finish my education. But that's not why I was scrubbing those toilets night after night. No, I was scrubbing toilets so God could scrub the arrogance and rinse away some of that self-centeredness to turn me into a servant. It was a two-year training of feet washing, teaching me servanthood. The disciples learned that lesson in one night. I guess I'm, I'm more dense than them because it took me two years. But it gave me a new perspective on the hard work of those in the service industry. It, it taught me a thing or two that we should never think that we're above any job. It taught me that God loves PhDs and janitors and everybody else. And some of the guys I worked with in the, that same unit of ours, our janitorial crew, some of them were the smartest guys I've ever been around in my entire life. It put life in perspective. It was a two-year lesson that I needed to learn. I needed a lesson on servanthood. What about you? Are you a servant? Willing to wash someone's feet or scrub their toilets? Do you see those that are struggling in life and look down on them? Or do you see that they are deeply loved by the Father? Are you willing to be shaped by the Master, even if it takes two years or ten years? You probably won't get rich doing those things. It'll cost you. It might, you might not get notoriety or fame. It'll humble you. But are you willing to be a servant? Are you willing to allow your pride to drip away so that you look at others differently? I promise you, you'll see the world different. You'll see your family members different. It's, it's doing what Jesus called us to do. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Servanthood. That's what we're talking about. Being a servant in your home, in your neighborhood, at our church, whenever we get back there. Are you a servant to your spouse? Let's start at home during this stay-at-home order. To be a servant in your home. To care for those in your home. To be a servant, maybe in your neighborhood. Is there someone, a senior adult in your neighborhood that you can safe distance away help? It's serving others, not being self-centered, self-focused, but rather Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused, being like Jesus. Paul wrote it. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. Lord, your presence is real. And even if we're home alone watching this service this morning, we're not alone, for your, your word tells us that you are with us. Even if we had to take communion all by ourselves, it's not just ourselves, you're with us. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us during this time of this stay-at-home order what it means to be a servant, a servant in our own homes, a servant to the, our spouses or our parents or our children, our grandparents, whoever may be there. Lord, help us to be a servant. Help us to follow you and to have an attitude, a mindset of Jesus Christ. Help us to, to be yours wherever we find ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.